What's up, everybody? Welcome into this special edition of Triple Threat. It's just me, Harris Hicks. Keith Ty and I will be on Blaze Radio Thursday at 7 Pacific time to recap the weekend. But, folks, sometimes there are college football Saturdays that are just so gosh darn entertaining that I am dying at the bit to talk about them. And, boy, this was one of those Saturdays because, oh, man, a lot happened. Trust me, we'll get to the picks later. 63% profit this year, by the way. How about that? We'll keep it rolling. But, oh, man, I'm talking field storms, upsets, back-and-forth QB shutouts, which is something you haven't found much in the NFL recently. But anyway, I've been looking forward to doing this episode since I stormed the field Saturday night. And, yes, folks, I was in Knoxville last weekend. And, darn it, it was beautiful. For the first time since 2015, I was there. So we're going to lead off with Tennessee's upset over Alabama, because why not? And I'm going to put it bluntly, Knoxville was a freaking madhouse. I mean, those 15 years of disappointment just boiled over. Kiffin leaving in 09, the hopelessness of the Dooley years, the disappointment of the Butch years, the embarrassment of the Pruitt years, it all added up. When I first got there, my brother actually took me to a frat party. He goes to Tennessee, and I know, weird, I was at a frat party. Not a usual occurrence, but the first thing I saw was about a crowd of Hundreds of people chanting, F-Bama, F-Bama. And I remember thinking, wow, okay, this is a lot different than Pac-12 country. <laughs> I think the average person in Knoxville got about two hours of sleep before that game, myself included, I'm not going to lie. And, well, it didn't phase anyone, obviously. Shout out to Red Bull. On the way to the game, uh, I saw people smashing a car that had a Bama logo on it with a hammer. When I got to the game, it was filled about an hour before And during the game, I remember talking to these sorority girls, actually were nice enough to buy me drinks, not to toot my own horn or anything. But yes, I'm 21, so it's legal. Not a hard drinker, rarely ever drink actually, but in a special occasion like this one, I'll dabble. And these girls knew almost the whole Tennessee roster and were screaming just as much as I was. So that should show you, everyone at this game, I mean everyone, was screaming at the top of their lungs. Luckily, I kept my voice for the show because... I think I have a voice of steel, but man, during the game, okay, I think security would come down about every five minutes to kick people out who were fighting over seats. People were hiding in rows to get away from security to get a better seat. People were yelling at each other for seats the entire time. The fans probably sat a total of like 40 seconds, not including halftime. Their legs didn't get tired one bit, I'll bet you. And the stadium eventually reached over 130 decibels, which According to the CBC, at 120 decibels, it starts causing, quote, immediate harm to your ears. I think my ears are okay, but I don't know. We'll see. But folks, it didn't hit me once that I could have been at one of the most entertaining games in possibly college football history until Keith actually called me and and told me that. I was like, wow, I didn't think about that one bit. You know that feeling of when you're just watching a movie and it ropes you in so much that you just forget where you are and lose all awareness of your surroundings, you know what I'm talking about. That was this game. This was as back and forth as it gets. Honestly, it was a lot like Buffalo and Kansas City, but there was such a personal aspect to it that pro sports just can't offer. But anyway, in terms of the game, when Will Reichard was kicking that 49-yard field goal, I remember thinking, shoot, he's going to make the kick. Tennessee was so close. Had him right where they wanted him. Will Reichard was 71% on field goals, more than 40 yards up to that point. So when he pushed it right, I remember looking at my brother completely and utterly shocked. 
I looked at the clock, saw there was 30 seconds remaining with two timeouts, and I remember thinking, oh, shoot. This isn't probable, but this is actually possible. If anyone can score here, it's Tennessee. Hendon Hooker hit Jalen Hyatt down the middle, which, you know, that was a reoccurring theme. And when Hendon Hooker threw it to Brew McCoy, I remember, first off, I remember seeing Jordan Battle close very fast and thinking, oh, shoot, he's not going to hold on, is he? But he made that tough catch, and all of a sudden, when he completes that, I'm getting pushed to the wall, and everyone, I mean everyone, starts shoving each other. And before you know, I'm leaning near the wall at this point, right? And then all of a sudden, Chase McGrath starts trotting under the field. It kind of hits me like, oh, shoot, this could actually happen. I can't really see, also. I'm not the tallest guy in the world. I'm about five foot seven, five eight in a good day. So when people were standing over me, I remember looking at where we were the twenty at the twenty five yard line, thinking, okay, it's around forty yards. This could actually happen. It was tipped, so it was a knuckleball, and I was surrounded by so many pushing students that I couldn't see if it went in or not. So I tried to look at the refs and see, oh, are they going to throw up a good or no good sign? And when they threw up the sign. First off, I saw them, this is crazy, they threw up the sign in about a split second, immediately just sprint off the field because that crowd roared. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to process, holy crap, Tennessee beat Alabama. My brother is hugging me, and as I'm thinking about all of this, I'm getting shoved towards the wall. And I get pushed off the wall as I'm trying to jump, barely land, run on the field with my brother. I'd lost my friends up to this point. They're gone. Uh, first thing I see, <laughs> this is awesome, this image will never leave my mind, is Brew McCoy standing at midfield smoking a cigar. I heard that the fireworks went off when we won. I saw that in the picture. I, I didn't even hear him. But anyway, when I tried to get to the field goal post, so this is all like going on at once. My, I'm going, my mind is going nuts. Like I'm trying to process this while all of this is going on. Lost my cigar, unfortunately, but hey, it was worth it. Uh, got trampled, tried to get to the field goal post, didn't quite work. Bunch of people beat, beat me to it. Got to be quicker than that. A funny story, though. My friend Grizz, who also goes to Tennessee, told me this. Now, this is just a rumor. He knew someone that took down the field goal post and threw it in the Tennessee River, right? You, you heard about that. Rumor has it it's still there to this day. That was, that was a team, team effort. Well, one person ended up getting arrested only to get bailed out of jail by none other than the head coach of Tennessee, Josh Heupel. Yes, Josh Heupel. Anyway, it was a crazy, life-changing experience in Knoxville, and the entire sport of college football has dramatically changed because of it. And Nick Saban said his players weren't quite loose in the pressure. In the presser, excuse me. Can't talk. He and his players usually chant, but they weren't chanting. That's what he said. Will Anderson said Bama came out with a bunch of anxiety. So it's clear the atmosphere had a huge effect. In side note, Bama fans that are getting mad about Tennessee playing Dixieland Delight, hey, Alabama, just know Dixieland Delight was originated in Tennessee. Y'all stole it first. Tennessee just stole it back for the weekend. But in terms of the game itself, it's hard. It's hard to analyze this game logically because, oh man, no team outplayed anyone else. That's why this game was so memorable. College football data gave Tennessee a 53% win expectancy. Pretty accurate. For context, Tennessee, 567 yards. Bama, 569. That's a two-yard separation for all you math nerds out there. 101 points scored in this game. But in terms of Tennessee winning, coming into this game, I said for the first time 
in years, Tennessee does something better than Alabama does, and that's generate explosive plays. So if this turns into a shootout, Tennessee can easily win this game by doing that. If this turns into a defensive game, Tennessee's defense will most likely break first. But in order to upset or contend with Alabama as the lesser talented team, you need a skill player on offense or defense to have the game of their life. Jalen Hyatt did just that. Remember, Cedric Tillman was out. So my point last year, when Arkansas almost beat Alabama, Traylon Burks, 179 yards, two touchdowns. Against A&M, Nia Smith, two touchdowns. Against Auburn, Roger McCreary basically took John Mechie out of the game, shadowed him almost the entire time. Somebody needs to step up or Alabama will steamroll you if you don't have the talent. And Jalen Hyatt did just that. Bama couldn't guard him. DeMarco Helms was running circles almost the whole game trying to guard him. We can talk about Hendon Hooker, and trust me, we will, but what had Alabama struggling on defense so much is not only how Tennessee generated explosive plays, but how they ran the ball. Tennessee had 182 yards on 4.7 a carry. So in RPOs or play actions, the safety safeties had such a fear of the explosive play that the linebackers would bite on runs and the safeties would go so far back. So the crease in the middle of the field was massively open. But man, Hendon Hooker, oh my gosh. He would hit Jalen Hyatt with 50 yards, 50 air yards and a target. And Jalen Hyatt wouldn't even break a stride. I'm going to say this. That's not something you see every Sunday. A lot of times you see receivers usually break stride or have to adjust. There were a couple throws where Jalen Hyatt didn't even have to adjust. It was right in the bread basket almost every time. Now there was that one missed deep ball. I get it. But Tennessee, in terms of how they run their offense, it's not a Sunday offense. It's the Art Bryles receivers, extremely wide, free up space to utilize the middle of the field and deep sidelines, use the RPO to bait those linebackers into thinking run, and then boom, safety's far back, middle of the field is wide open. But in this offense, there's a lot of choice routes from receivers, meaning, bear with me here, receivers aren't designated to run slants or goes. Mostly, they read the coverage themselves and decide what route to run. So the quarterbacks and receivers must be on the same page under every circumstance. That comes with a lot of film, a lot of chemistry. So if y'all don't remember last year, you'll see where I'm going with this. Tennessee was actually close with Bama in the fourth quarter. It was a one-possession game. Tennessee was at midfield. Hendon Hooker threw it outside to the left. Nobody was in the vicinity of the pass of where it was thrown. Boom. Bama, pick six, game over. You guys can search to throw up on YouTube. I recommend it. On TV, it looked like he was throwing it to literally nobody. But what happened was he expected his receiver to break to the outside, and he ran a different route to the inside. So guess what? They weren't on the same page, and it costed them the game. Last year, Tennessee had a couple of minor errors on offense here and there, and their defense was below average. So sometimes they couldn't recover. This year, Hidden Hooker and his receivers, they're clearly on the same page obviously on the same page but frankly i'm not sure that's the biggest reason they've taken such a leap a stat that is going severely unnoticed okay tennessee allowed just 3.7 yards per carry to alabama last week alabama is currently leading the country in yards per carry tennessee is allowing just 95 rushing yards per game on the season that's the sixth best in college football last year they gave up 158 rushing yards per game 65th pretty average A lot of people want to talk about this Tennessee offense. 
all of a sudden, this offense with the top 10 rush defense, they did not have that last year. This rush defense has taken a massive leap. So now for Tennessee, after beating Alabama, 538 projections came out. It went from Tennessee having a 12% chance to make the playoff to a 50% chance. So the two questions become, will, not can, Tennessee make the college football playoff? And two, can Tennessee win the national championship? I'm going to say this about Tennessee. We'll get to Bama soon. People down in Phoenix are going to appreciate this, so bear with me. Tennessee's a great team. Of course they can make the playoff. There's a big chance, there's a 50-50 chance they will make the playoff at this point. Looking at their schedule, they're going to be favored by double digits in every single game except for Kentucky. And a one-loss SEC team with a win over Alabama nine times out of ten gets in the playoff. But a national championship? Josh Heupel's in year two, so the Vols are way ahead of schedule. I'll acknowledge that. Here's my comparison. This is going to sound pretty outlandish, but bear with me. The Vols remind me a lot of those, remember those Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, mid-2000s Phoenix Suns teams? Critically acclaimed, extremely entertaining, a well-oiled machine as an offensive scheme, a lot of star power, a lot of points scored, quick tempo. Those things made the Phoenix Suns high-level contenders in the 2000s, but they had holes. Those Suns teams struggled defensively when it came down to it in the big game. Teams like the Spurs would attack Steve Nash defensively, and Amari Stoudemire couldn't defend the pick and roll. They got a little exposed and fell just short. Tennessee is all those things. A lot of points on the board. They do a really good job at winning one way. Entertaining, fun to watch, very good team. However, however, Tennessee is giving up 332 passing yards per game right now. That's 130th in the country, second to last. Only team that's worse is Ohio. Ohio, Northern Illinois over. Look into that. That Save that for the, for the later on part of the episode, but just saying. Teaser. I think there's one way Tennessee can win the national championship, and it's possible this happens. Hendon Hooker needs to go absolutely insane. He needs to turn into a generational quarterback. I'm talking like Joe Burrow 2019 or Cam Newton 2010 level generational. Because Tennessee may need to put up 60 to beat Ohio State. They can. I'm not sure they will, but they can. With that being said, we've seen teams have this hole and still make it to the playoff. Now, you non-basketball fans, I'll say this. This is who Tennessee reminds me of. Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma with Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, and Jalen Hurts. Those teams have some similarities. We saw those teams become elite. We never quite saw those teams become the top dog because they had holes on defense they couldn't quite recover from. And that's where I think Tennessee is right now. A great spot. Again, awesome spot. But they're a couple pieces away from the Ohio States of the world. They can. I'm just not sure they will. Regardless, after this game, the college football playoff committee could have some serious problems in November. Imagine this. It's a long scenario. Tennessee loses close to Georgia, not a blowout, close, and wins out. Georgia wins out, loses to Bama in the SEC championship. Bama wins out, wins the SEC. Clemson goes unbeaten. Michigan, 11-1 with a close loss to Ohio State. What does that, what does the committee do there? And that doesn't even factor, like, if UCLA wins out or if you get a conference, a 12-1 Oregon team. Leave a one-loss SEC team out with a win over Bama, 
in Tennessee? Are they going to do that? An undefeated ACC team's out? Now, you might be thinking, Harris, why are you visiting this one scenario so much? Folks, this scenario is more likely than you think. I've already mentioned that Tennessee is going to be a double-digit favorite every single game except for Georgia. Georgia and Bama are both favored in every single game by far. Clemson doesn't play a single team ranked in the top 30 in the Triple H model for the rest of the season. Michigan will be favored in every game substantially except for Ohio State. So I'm going to say it, folks. Buckle up. Put your seatbelts on because deserving teams are about to get snubbed and chaos is about to endure. Just be ready for the ride. In terms of Alabama, we've seen this story before. Some people are saying, oh, they look shaky. I think they're done. If history teaches us anything, Bama is not done. 2011, they lost to LSU. What happened? National championship. 2012, lost to A&M. What happened? National championship. 2014, lost to Ole Miss. People thought they were done. What happened? One seed, college football playoff. 2015, lost to Ole Miss again. What happened? National championship. Last year, lost to Texas A&M. What happened? Made the national championship game. They still have the best quarterback in the country. And I can confirm, because I want to talk about this more. Bryce Young is one of the best athletes I've ever seen in person. The way he gets out of sacks and improvises is something I've never seen before. Ever. Regarding those QBs at the top, like CJ Stroud and Hendon Hooker execute very well. They hit their throws with laser accuracy. They make the easy throws even easier. They can burn you deep too. Bryce Young does that, but he improvises at a level that I've just never seen before. And I'd put Caleb Williams in this class too. Alabama, despite having all this talent, completely self-destructs when Bryce Young isn't in the picture. We saw it against A&M. Jalen Milrow was averaging about five yards of passes in with three turnovers in that game. That offense asked Bryce Young to do pretty much everything. And it baffles me because usually Alabama is this well-oiled machine, meaning, oh, guy gets injured, next guy up. We've got like four, four and five stars remaining. They're unfazed usually. But this hasn't been the case with Bama this year. If a receiver doesn't get open, and honestly, that's kind of been a theme for them this year, Bryce Young just buys himself time and hits the receiver perfectly with three D linemen in his face. It's crazy. It, he, he only gets sacked on 9% of pressures. That's the second lowest amongst FBS quarterbacks. And sometimes, you know, when you another basketball comparison, this will be the last one, when you watch a basketball player dribble and create separation and you don't even have to look at his stats, you can just tell, oh, okay, that guy's good. I think it's like that with quarterbacks sometimes. You can watch them sit in the pocket and stay super cool and super poised with 300-pound linemen in their face and still go through their reads in a matter of three seconds and think, all right, that guy gets it. That guy's good. I think it's just like that with Bryce Young. The level of improvisation he has is something Russell Wilson never had in college, Patrick Mahomes ever had in college. I'd go that far. When he gets under pressure, he does this bendy limbo thing with his knees out and somehow just like keeps his balance and makes a play, it frustrated Tennessee fans so much. So as long as Alabama has Bryce Young and he stays healthy, they're not going anywhere. And there's still so much talent and good coaching on that defensive side of the ball. Maybe their receiving core limits them from beating Ohio State, but overall, their biggest enemy is themselves. They're the third most penalized team in the country right now, and I get it. They're going up against hostile environments, Tennessee notably, but Texas and Arkansas too. But their problem is fixable. 
their personnel, their, their problem isn't a personnel weakness like Tennessee. It's themselves. They're capable of more. So I wouldn't be shocked if we look back in December and say, wow, remember when Alabama struggled against Texas, lost to Tennessee? Man, they, they were even the most penalized team in the country at that point. They really turned it around, didn't they? You know what? I would not be shocked because you know why? We've seen it before a countless amount of times. All right. We have to talk about this. Michigan Penn State. Y'all know I try not to curse on this show often, but I'm going to put this bluntly. Michigan kicked their ass last weekend. They kicked their ass. There's no other way to put it. And y'all may look at the scoreboard and say, 41-17? I mean, sure, yeah, they did. Whatever. The scoreboard doesn't even do it justice. Michigan ran all over them. I repeat, all over them. 400 and 18 rushing yards as a team, 7 a carry. No, those are not their passing stats. Those are their rushing stats. Michigan had more rushing yards against Penn State last weekend than Penn State gave up all year prior to that game. And honestly, you take a Penn State pick six that bounced off a player's helmet in a Sean Clifford 62-yard run, Penn State probably gets shut out in garbage time. I don't know if they score. And here's my opinion on Michigan. We've seen them demolish teams that they're clearly better than. Great teams do that. They're beating teams by 30 points per game, and their defense is legit. Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards can run the heck out of the ball. This is the best offensive line Harbaugh's ever had. Potentially. They're blowing out teams by playing through their defense, annihilating teams on the ground, and letting J.J. McCarthy manage the game and do what's asked of them. That's what they've done, and they've worked it to perfection. I'll give you all these stats. J.J. McCarthy against teams outside the top 50 in defensive efficiency. 11 yards of pass attempt, 84 PFF grade. Pretty good. Against defenses inside the top 50, 6.9 yards per pass attempt, 64 PFF grade. Not too great. Michigan's running the ball on 60% of their plays. That's a lot. So here's my question. We know they can destroy bad teams, but in big games, can Michigan get away with not using J.J. McCarthy? And if they use him, can he perform in those big games if they need to use him? I think Michigan's a playoff contender, no doubt about it. But if they have to play a Tennessee or a Bama, Georgia, Ohio State, or Clemson, and Michigan can't get stops, they could get routed if J.J. McCarthy doesn't perform at an elite level in those big games when they need him. Michigan's without a doubt a playoff contender. They are. I, they are. National championship, I'm not sure. I think they're one piece away. In terms of Penn State, man, oh boy. Penn State's expectation is let's contend with Ohio State. Let's try to win the Big Ten. They get the boosters to do it. They generate the revenue. Top 15 in revenue gained from college football last season. They have the fan base. But right now, it's Ohio State way up here. Then a gap. Then it's Michigan. Then another huge gap. And it's the rest of the Big Ten. And Penn State is right there with the average Big Ten team right now. This game showed it. Michigan barely needed to use J.J. McCarthy to beat the brakes off of Penn State. You could argue Penn State should have lost to Purdue. In terms of Penn State, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It could be Drew Aller time in State College, Pennsylvania, very soon. So I was curious. I looked at Sean Clifford's stats against teams ranked in the top 50 in defensive SB Plus last year. Since 2020, here they are. 58% completion percentage, 6.7 yards in attempt, 207 passing yards per game, 84.7 passer rating. 
well below the college football average of 94 by the way all those stats i mentioned are actually below the college football average now this isn't me dogging on sean clifford if iowa had sean clifford frick they'd be a darn good team i'm just saying penn state hasn't gotten the output from clifford they've expected in meaningful games and the stats show that and they recruited a 65 240 future nfl prospect of a freshman as another option and drew aller it's not like last year when clifford got hurt and penn state only had taekwon roberson as their backup they have other options when you give up over 400 rushing yards in a game qb play is not even close to your biggest issue if this game taught you anything anything it's that penn state is miles away from competing for a big 10 championship that's just how it is i'm not i'm not saying they should fire franklin or anything like that because that type of feast or famine mentality is what gets good coaches fired and what botches hires talking to you nebraska anyway i digress alabama and tennessee wasn't the only one possession shootout we saw last saturday for those that stayed up late you know bama tennessee was great but that should in no way cast a shadow on this usc utah game it was a classic complete back and forth bama and tennessee were separated by two yards usc and utah were separated by just six this game was no different first off the atmosphere was electric rice eccles had the blackout going it was awesome jumping it was completely filled usc got out to a pretty big lead 21-7 caleb williams marched them down convincingly his second touchdown pass was insane he spinned away from a d lineman and like falling off his back foot fired in a tight needle perfectly to his receiver and boy cam rising just kept responding that kid is tough the way he can hang in there and make plays him and dalton kincaid his tight end were absolutely in sync 230 receiving yards over 50 percent of cam rising's passing yards were to dalton kincaid usc did lose romello Wright, their star linebacker for the season and you could argue that really hurt them in this game because they did not have a solution for kincaid none anyway most people when they think of utah they think oh great defense serviceable offense folks i'm here to tell you that is not this year's utah team at all usc ran all over him 6.4 carry in utah their o-line feasted up front on the ground almost every throw caleb williams attempted he was falling off his back foot with a d end in his face kind of what i talked about with bryce young he would hit his receivers right in the bread basket perfectly I mean, this game had it all. Like, Caleb Williams, 438 yards, five touchdowns. Cam Rising, 475 and five touchdowns. And going back to what I said before, for Bryce Young, it's his ability to just, like, buy as much time as possible and gain space from the pass rusher. I'm not even sure Caleb Williams needs the space sometimes. He'll just fire a pass so accurately while in the most awkward positions. It's nuts. Cam Rising was accurate, too. He just kept, again, just kept responding. There was a fourth and two in the fourth quarter where Cam Rising just put his head down, and he looked like he was about to get stuffed. He took two defenders with them and just carried them past the first down marker. A lot of QBs, you you know, usually brace themselves when taking big hits like that. Cam Rising doesn't have an ounce of fear whatsoever when taking those hits. Maybe he does. It doesn't look like it on TV. And I don't know if you saw the end of the game. Epic field storm, by the way. I'd love to go to Utah. That atmosphere is sick. They showed Dalton Kincaid, and he was crying. They showed Caleb Williams. He was crying. There was a lot of emotion in this game. A lot. Again, not something that pro sports usually offers. We're here for it. Anyway, here's the thing about USC. They're really good. 
Lincoln Riley, as a matter of fact, has them a little ahead of schedule. But I think college football is separated into three clear tiers right now. There's Tier 1, Ohio State, Georgia, and I'm not going to react. Alabama, I still think, is a Tier 1 team. Little to no flaws, no gaping hole, crazy amount of talent, unlimited capability. Then there's the next tier. Tennessee, Texas, I'd still put Texas on there. Michigan, probably Clemson. These teams have a lot of talent. They either do almost everything at an elite level, but there's one big weakness that holds them back, or everything at a good level and lack an area where they stand out. For Tennessee, the off, the passing, the rushing, the run defense is there, like the secondary. For Michigan, the run game and defense is there, unproven at quarterback. For Clemson, pretty much good everywhere. DJU's been great this season. They don't do anything, however, at an elite level. Texas is honestly interesting because they don't really have a gaping personnel hole. So they could break out of this tier into Tier 1, but they lack the consistency. They honestly have a floor of a Tier 3 team, such as those other teams don't. Ceiling of a Tier 1 team, though. But, yeah. USC is in the tier right after that, which is they have clear strengths with Caleb Williams under center and Lincoln Riley calling plays. A couple weaknesses that hold them back. 153 rushing yards per game, and they're 60th in pass defense. Unlike Tennessee, Tennessee has an anchor on defense. Their secondary is a liability, but their defense is not a liability. USC's defense is a liability. You could put Ole Miss, Arkansas, Utah, Oregon, TCU, Oklahoma State in this tier. I think this is where USC belongs. And unfortunately, this probably eliminated USC and maybe the Pac-12, unless UCLA wins out, from the college football playoff. USC is going to need a lot of dominoes to fall their way. I mean a lot. Tennessee needs to lose twice. USC needs to beat UCLA and win out. Georgia needs to beat Bama in the SEC championship. Clemson needs to lose at least once, maybe twice. Michigan might need to lose twice. And USC could still make the Rose Bowl, which is a fair expectation to have. Again, we don't support feast or famine mentality on the show. If you are a USC fan, you shouldn't have come into the season thinking championship or bust. But anyway... The Pac-12 race between USC, Utah, Oregon, and UCLA, that's going to be one entertaining race, to say the least. Now, last week, we got an awesome Pac-12 shootout. This week, it could be no different with UCLA and Oregon playing. That's where we segue into this week's games. This is a huge game for Rose Bowl implications. Huge. There's a reason why College Game Day is going to Autzen. Both of these teams started off the season really rusty. UCLA almost lost to South Alabama. Probably should have, honestly. If you don't remember, South Alabama ran a fake field goal in range with two seconds to go. They were down in the first quarter to Bowling Green. They turned it around. And Oregon got embarrassed on national television by Georgia. UCLA is probably the Pac-12's only alive shot to make the college football playoff. Maybe Oregon, highly unlikely. Is it likely? No, that UCLA makes it. Is it possible? Sure. If you haven't watched this UCLA offense and Dorian Thompson-Robinson, man, you're missing out. 15-10 yards, 15 touchdowns, two picks. Actually leading the Pac-12 in pass rating right now. Chip Kelly has this team rolling. 15th in scoring margin, even if the fans don't seem to care that much. I care. I care about UCLA. Since they lost to Georgia, Oregon's figured it out, too. Beating their opponents by 25 points per game since week two. Bo Nix has figured it out. 12 touchdowns and two picks since the Georgia game. However, as dominant as these pass offenses have been, 
This game's going to be decided in the trenches. It is. UCLA is averaging 5.5 yards per carry as a team, top 20 in the country. They can air it out, but they run the ball 53% of the time. So Zach Charbonnet, averaging 7 yards per carry on the season, third in the country, is going to be huge in this game. But in regards to DTR, I'm going to say this. Okay, Statistically, he's having an awesome season. There's no denying that. But I'm going to say this. Sometimes the system makes you look a little bit better than you are. As a matter of fact, honestly, statistically, it's a low-key Heisman caliber season for DTR. But putting the numbers in my model, it actually ranked Dorian Thompson-Robinson as the 46th best quarterback in the country. 46? You're probably thinking, what? He's seen his stats. He's got to be higher than that. Let's dissect these numbers a little bit. 43% of Dorian Thompson-Robinson's throws have come from play action this year. Top 10 most in the country. And I talked about this last night. If you saw it, listen to it, there you go. Fast forward a couple minutes, you won't have to hear it again. But if you're just hearing this, bear with me. 43% of his throws from play action. 9.1 yards per pass attempt in the season. Very efficient. But his average depth of target is 5.6. That's the second lowest of any starting quarterback in the FBS. Shout out Henry Columbia at Marshall. Of Dorian Thompson Robinson's 163 yard, 163 pass attempts, 110 are towards the middle of the field, 68%. That is the highest in the country by a long shot. So you may ask, Harris, why are all these stats so important? So important. Why are you talking about this? That's because statistically, almost all of his production is coming off of play action, short passes to the middle of the field. What does that mean? UCLA is Zach Charbonnet. If you're not familiar, he's a former five-star running back, having a great year, NFL prospect for sure. So when UCLA shows run, oh, trust me, the linebackers on teams that don't have defensive linemen that can't fill their gaps, they'll bite. They will absolutely bite. With that being said, UCLA has played against the 77th, 84th, 110th, 36th, and 71st graded defensive lines this year. So Dorian Thompson-Robinson has made a living off of short middle-of-the-field play-action passes against piss-poor run defenses, and the receivers have done a lot of work after the catch. He's made a living off of the run game. Oregon is giving up 97 rushing yards per game, ninth in the country. They have the 15th graded defensive line, according to the Triple H model. By far the best UCLA has played, by the way. So my question is, between UCLA's run game and Oregon's front seven, which one of these is going to break? Because both have been elite this season, and whichever one breaks will decide what type of game Dorian Thompson-Robinson has, and probably the outcome. The model has Oregon winning by four and a half, so it sides with UCLA. Now, as accurate as the model has been this year, 63% profit, 73% money line. A computer reads the lines very well, but it can't read between the lines. So I'm going to pick Oregon to win in a close one. If Oregon's D-line shows up to play, I think they route them. I'm not sure that's going to happen. What is UCLA's offense if the short middle of the field isn't open? That's where Dorian Thompson-Robinson's production pretty much is all coming from. UCLA has the sixth best running room in the country, according to the model. One spot behind Georgia, who, if you don't remember, absolutely annihilated Oregon. So if UCLA runs the ball against them, 
I'm not sure this secondary can hold up against Chip Kelly's RPO scheme. So I think UCLA at plus 190 to win this game, pretty good value. Something y'all should sprinkle a little on. But I'm taking Oregon. It's going to be a close one. All right, next game. Ole Miss and LSU. (laughs) What a confusing game this one's going to be. I'm going to be honest. These are the two, probably the two toughest teams in the country to figure out. Like, I've deliberated what Ole Miss's identity is all year and still haven't figured it out. And I came in thinking, oh, it's their defense that's going to win them games after they held Kentucky to 19 and shut out Georgia Tech. They proceed to give up 27 to Tulsa, 28 to Vandy, and 34 to Auburn. Then I think, oh, typical Ole Miss. Their offense is good. Then Jackson Dart throws, I think, three picks against Troy. And against Auburn, somehow they drop 48 with Dart going 9 for 19 passing. They're also like sub-top 40 in rushing guards. They run it efficiently. They don't run it a lot. So how are they scoring all these points? Again, I have no idea. I just can't figure them out. I just can't. They also haven't played anyone elite yet. LSU, maybe the toughest team they're going to play this year. But I don't understand them either. And they... They needed a ton of turnover luck to barely beat Auburn. They let Robbie Ashford throw for over 300 yards and got absolutely destroyed by Tennessee. Or are they the team that doubled Mississippi State's score and just dropped 45 on Florida? I have no idea. What a confusing game this is. I have absolutely no idea what any of these two teams are. I don't. The numbers can't even agree on Ole Miss either. In terms of my player grade rankings, Sub top 20 in personnel grade right now. Top 10 in every single power rating that exists, including mine. Who knows? My numbers can't agree on LSU. 11th in personnel grade, but an EPA and SOS combination metrics, which is like a team power rating estimation. It's not math class, so I'm not going to go too depth into that. Sub top 20. I don't know what to make of this. I think this game could go like 20 different ways. Both teams' quarterbacks have struggled at times. Both have flashed. Both defenses have flashed. Both have struggled. I don't even recommend touching the spread or money line here. The only thing I would contemplate is betting on the under. It's at 66.5 right now, and that's really high for two teams that have inconsistent QB play. So the model leans under here, but not a strong lean. I'll say this about LSU. There's one thing I can understand and hone in on in this game. This is it. Jaden Daniels could get sacked a lot. Ole Miss has possibly the best linebacker room in the country. Their linebackers are good. Among Power 5 teams, Ole Miss is in the top 10 in sacks per game. And LSU's offensive line, yeah, it's taken its fair share of criticism. And they haven't been amazing this year pass blocking, you know. But I don't think they're as bad as people think. Jaden Daniels is not making it any easier for the guys up front. First off, he's holding on to the ball for 2.92 seconds before throwing. Top 30 in the country. Not horrible. That's actually gotten better. He was leading the country in that by a mile at one point. He made quicker decisions against Florida. The processing speed still isn't where it needs to be, but here's what sticks out to me. He's only under pressure on 29% of his dropbacks, right below the college football average of 30. But yet he's been sacked 23 times. That's the fifth most in college football. Meaning, despite all that mobility that Jaden Daniels has, all that athleticism, he is not getting out of sacks whatsoever. So the offensive line has actually done its job, pass blocking wise. They're right at the mean. Not more than what's asked of them, not less. Jaden Daniels is just holding onto the ball slightly too long and not feeling the pass rush at all when it comes. That's caused a lot of third and longs and been LSU's biggest problem on offense. If LSU can stop the run, I think they win this game. 
uh, the model SOSU winning by 0.7 points, so it can't pick a it can't pick a side either. It's pretty 50-50. Almost a pick 'em in this game. Sides with LSU with the spread being at LSU by one and a half, or sides with Ole Miss, but not enough to bet on it. If LSU can stop, yeah, yeah, this is extreme. They, yeah, this is extremely an unsure lean towards LSU because I see this game going about 50 directions. So for me to hone in on one just seems foolish. Save your money, folks. Trust me. There are better fish in the sea than this one. All right. Next one. Man, the Big 12 is one confusing conference, isn't it? I thought Texas was the best team in the conference, and boy, Iowa State gave them a scare. It looked like Oklahoma State was going to rout TCU. Before you know it, check the score. An hour later, after being down three possessions, TCU won the game. But man, isn't that what makes it so entertaining? I mean, the Big 12 may not be the best conference, but it's definitely the most entertaining. I think the final scoreboard of that TCU-Oklahoma State game was misleading. I know Oklahoma State got out to a huge lead, but make no mistake, TCU beat them pretty badly, actually. They outgained them in yards, 510 to 360, eight more first downs in them. There was a rumor that Spencer Sanders was playing in this game injured. I didn't know that going in, so I had Oklahoma State money line. This could very well be true, this rumor. Because Oklahoma State ran the ball 41 times and passed 36 times. I think TCU knew this. I think Oklahoma State tried to compensate for this. And TCU could just tell because they stacked the box very frequently. And Oklahoma State averaged just 3.4 yards per carry. Anyway, talking about this Texas-Oklahoma State game. First off, a lot of implications here. This could be an elimination game from the Big 12 title game. But I'll say this, a lot of people are writing Texas off. A lot of people. In my opinion, too many people. 73% of the public right now is betting on Oklahoma State. That's a big number. First off, to those betting on Oklahoma State, it's not a done deal that Spencer Sanders is playing this game healthy. And I'll be honest, along with that, I'm not second-guessing my stance on Texas. I think this is a top-five football team, just without the resume to back it up. Again, there's an ongoing misconception in college football. We talked about this last night, that your record says what you are. We've addressed this on the show. Those that sports bet based on just wins and losses are the ones that are losing money betting. I repeat, those that sports bet based on just wins and losses are the ones that are losing money betting. I guarantee you, a lot of people looked at this and said, man, Texas is favored by a touchdown on the road? That's a lot for a 4-2 team with a loss to Texas Tech. Oklahoma State's 5-1. Guys, Vegas knows what they're doing with this line. As a matter of fact, the model agrees. Triple H model agrees that it's Texas by 6. My only doubt with Texas is Quinn Ewers has really struggled under pressure this year. Like, a lot. But he's only been under pressure on 19% of his dropbacks because he's such a quick decision maker. In a clean pocket, Ewers. 71% completion percentage, 9 touchdowns, no picks, nearly flawless. Under pressure, 50% completion percentage, no touchdowns, and 3 picks. So how do you beat Texas? By getting pressure on Quinn Ewers. I'm not sure if Oklahoma State can do that against Texas. These receivers gain so much separation and get open so fast, I'm not sure that the D-line could have time to get there. I I see Texas routing Oklahoma State, honestly, especially if Spencer Sanders is coming to this game hurt again. Oh boy, I think this this comes a blowout. Not fully sure to bet it. I'm pretty 50-50 on that. If you bet it, Texas spread, I support it. But yeah, I stand with that pick. 
Alright. The moment you guys have all been waiting for. College football is pretty fun, right? Of course it is. Talking about it's pretty fun. My opinion, best sport. But what if I told you we could talk about college football while earning some money? Folks, we're on a roll this year. $300 positive, getting a 63% profit so far. 73% with Moneyline bets. So pay extra attention to those when I list them. Last week was the worst betting week I've had since week two, and we were still positive. So we've got a lot of picks to get to, a lot of opportunities on the slate, as there always is, but I think this week more so than others. And folks, these aren't picks, these picks aren't flashy. We're not betting on games that you and your friends meet up to tailgate for. Mostly, we're betting on those games when you flip your computer open and you see if it's on ESPN Plus or if not, find an illegal stream. You know, New Mexico State FIU, you know those games. Because if it's not Alabama, it's not Alabama or Ohio State that's made us the most money this year. It's Troy. It's Ball State. It's Texas State. Small schools that the market hasn't quite adjusted on. So if you've gotten this far in, first off, thanks for listening. So your reward is going to be to make some money this weekend. I'm confident. The model's confident. Here's a massive betting weekend. We've got 45 picks in total to give you guys. So without further ado, here we go. Thursday night and Friday night. We'll get to those first. Virginia, plus 145 against Georgia Tech. UVA, bad turnover luck this season. Not sure that's going to continue against Georgia Tech. Good price. Troy, plus 140 against South Alabama. Gunnar Watson can sling it. I give them a 50 to 55% chance to win this. Plus 140 is a darn good value. Troy has made me a lot of money this year. Temple, team total under 19.5. Would like to get this to 20.5, but 19.5 is still not a shot. Not a bet that's too shabby. They can't move the ball on offense. They can't. And I've struggled betting on American games this year, but I'm confident. And UAB plus 105 against Western Kentucky. I think this is a good value. I think UAB could be favored. The model has them favored winning this game. So I like UAB. All right. Now on to Saturday. We're going to start against the spread. So far, 56% profit on spread picks. Not where we want to be, but still earning money. Ken State. Minus 18.5 against Toledo. Indiana, alt spread. Minus 5.5 with plus 245 odds against Rutgers. Taking a long shot there. Don't put the King's Ransom on that bet. Sprinkle a little bit. This is one I'm going to need y'all to pay attention to this. If Doug Brunfield plays, UNLV's starting quarterback. 13 touchdowns, 2 picks this season. I'm taking UNLV plus 27.5 against Notre Dame. That line is moving towards Notre Dame. So bet this at the last second you can. Because 27.5 is a huge number for a team that has the better quarterback in this game. UNLV's averaging 28 points per game when Doug Brunfield plays and 7 when he doesn't play. So if he doesn't play, don't touch it. Right now, it's looking pretty 50-50. We won't find out probably until tomorrow before kickoff. Another game time decision to monitor if Talea Tagovailoa plays for Maryland, I love the Terps, minus 13.5. As a matter of fact, I like Maryland alt spread, minus 20.5 as well. If he doesn't play, don't bet on it. UTSA by 10 against North Texas. Really high scoring this game. A lot of possible variants here. I love Frank Harris in this offense. Texas State alt spread, minus 6.5 with plus 220 odds against Southern Miss. I'll tell you all later why I'm not betting them standard spread. Southern Miss can't score. 
at least Texas State has showed flashes this year on offense. We saw it against App State. So this price is a good value at plus 220. I think the spread should be Texas State by like two or three. Instead, they're an underdog. Washington by a touchdown against Cal. This isn't my most confident bet. This is something I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of money on, but ah, Cal looked really shaky against Colorado. And a touchdown, not a whole lot. UCLA, six and a half against Oregon. I'd like this to move to seven. You've heard my explanation on this game. I think this game is pretty 50-50 because it's due to those two units in the trenches. One could break, one can't. You can't predict it. It's football. So UCLA at plus six and a half is a pretty good spread for two teams that seem pretty evenly matched this year. Houston, two and a half against Navy. Now, folks, a heads up. I have been very bad at betting on American games this year. I don't know why. I wish I could tell you. I'm trying to get better at that. But, man, <laughs> it's been rough. So proceed with caution here. Maybe fade me if you want on American spreads. I don't care. But I'm going to die trying, and I like this Houston spread. Another AAC spread, UCF, 4.5 against East Carolina. Not a strong lean, but I'll sprinkle some on it. All right. The over-unders. It's our worst category of betting. 54% profit, though. Again, still positive. So here we go. Syracuse-Clemson, over 49 points. You get the push value. If only if seven touchdowns are scored, then, yeah, you get the push. However, with this offense, I think we're going to see more points. Northern Illinois and Ohio, over 65 points. Also an alt over, 72.5. You heard me talk about Ohio secondary. It's really bad. Southern Miss, Texas State, under 44.5 points. If this was 45.5, this would have been one of my three absolute locks, but that's a football number, so it makes a difference. Still, I've been betting Southern Miss unders all year. They've been paying off. Their offense has really struggled so far. San Jose State, New Mexico State, under 43.5 points. Pitt, Louisville, over 55.5 points. And the alt-over in this game, 60.5 as well. And last but not least... Oh, this is sort of like the UCLA-Oregon game. I contemplated putting this on the card, but I'm going to do it. Ole Miss-LSU under 68. Those are my over-unders. Now, the money line bets. This is where we've made our money. 73% profit this year. Crazy. So here's what I got. This is the moneymaker. You heard me talk about Troy. You heard me talk about Virginia. I think they win. It's a value. Indiana, plus 134 against Rutgers. Ohio, plus 122 against Northern Illinois. Now, I talked about the over, but Northern Illinois, personnel-wise, isn't necessarily built to beat Ohio. Ohio's weakness is the secondary. Northern Illinois runs the ball really well. UNLV, if Doug Brumfield plays, plus 2,000 against Notre Dame. Bear with me. Calm down. I'm not picking them to win, but a team with the better quarterback at plus 2,000 is a value. Maybe put 50 cents or a dollar on this one, because it's possible. West Virginia, plus 220 against Texas Tech. Donovan Smith is banged up. Tyler Shutt is banged up. West Virginia could win this game. FIU, plus 460 against Charlotte. Memphis, plus 225 against Tulane. I have no idea how Tulane ended up being ranked. Uh, I don't care much about the AP poll, but I saw that, and that baffled me. I like that one a lot. I like Memphis there. UCLA, plus 195 against Oregon. Texas State, plus 120 against Southern Miss. Why take it at Texas State minus two when you can just take the plus value on the money line? There you go. Arkansas State, plus 215 against Louisiana Lafayette. Utah State, plus 175 against Wyoming. No one has more adjusted interceptions in the country than Andrew Paisley. 
Wyoming's quarterback. Utah State could win this game. 175 is a good value. Hawaii, plus 190 against Colorado State. There's this effect where when you bet, I'm not going to go too much in on these like little little guys because I get it. That's not what pulls in the ratings. I could, but that's not what pulls in the ratings. There's this effect that two teams, I feel like, that are so terrible could just it's kind of just like a 50 50 shot and like metrics are just (laughs) kind of out the window like when FIU played New Mexico State I had FIU plus 500 and they won I think this could be one of those games Hawaii at plus 190 is a good value if Colorado State was at plus 190 I would be taking them because both of them are pretty good values ULM plus 220 against Army Army's got a niche style of play We'll see how that one goes. However, I think ULM has a better chance than plus 220 odds to beat them. Last but not least, I'm actually going against the model here. So don't put too much money in on this one. I'm going to see how this works. I just have a hunch. Duke, plus 270 against Miami. I just think Duke has a way better chance to outscore Miami than Vegas does. So I'm going to take Duke. All right. Last but not least before the show ends. First off, again, thanks for staying this long. I appreciate it. My three best bets for this week. My third best bet, South Carolina at home, plus 140 against Texas A&M. My numbers are way lower than A&M than the rest of the country. Most power ratings have them in the top 25. I have them sub-top 40. It actually has South Carolina favored in this one. So there you go. As long as Haynes King is under center, I don't see A&M pulling away with this one. I'd rather bet on Rattler because at least the ceiling is there. Anyway, I like Carolina there. Good value. Second best bet, Fresno State, New Mexico, under 41.5. Not sure if this is going to move or not. It's been moving down. New Mexico hasn't scored over 20 points all year. Their offense is archaic. Fresno State hasn't scored over 20 points in a game since Jake Hayner got hurt. This is going to be low scoring. I can guarantee you that. My best bet of the week. This one's risky. The Power 5 teams cover over 60% of the time against group of five NFCS teams this year so far. Interesting stat. Keep that in mind. Tennessee minus 37.5 against UT Martin. Tennessee's undefeated against the spread this year. UT Martin's won three straight. I get it. But they've lost to Boise 30-7, lost to Western Kentucky by 38. Not necessarily a great track record against FBS opponents, much less Tennessee. I'm going to bet them at minus 37.5 and, and alt spread them at minus 44.5. All right, folks. Best of luck to you all in betting. And hey, let's enjoy this awesome slate we got this weekend, shall we? As always, be sure to subscribe on Spotify and follow me on Twitter at Harris Hicks for more content like this. And on that note, see y'all next time.